Our guest today is a video game designer who worked for a company that oozed quality. It was top of its class in multiple genres, and it gave us, or at least, at least it gave me, the affirmation that the hundreds or thousands of pounds that I'd spent on my new PC was money well spent when I fired up, uh, I think it was Day of the Tentacle, so there was definitely no buyer's remorse there for me. The company is, of course, LucasArts, and the man is David Fox. Welcome, David. Hey there. <laughs> David, I understand that when you joined LucasArts, it wasn't even called LucasArts at this time. We're going way, way back in the company's history. So so when did you join them? Well, I joined right at the very beginning uh, when it was the games group within the computer division of, of Lucasfilm. And I was the third person hired for this, uh, maybe the second outside person, one person transferred from inside. Uh, from inside the computer division over. So that was 1982. Um, September 82 is when I started. Mm -hmm. And whereabouts in the world was this all happening? Where were you based? So this was in Marin County, uh, California, which is just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, in, uh, north of San Francisco, which is where Lucasfilm was based. And uh, I happened to actually live in that same county, so that was convenient and have to relocate or anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I understand also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was off the back of a book that you wrote uh, about computer animation or you were writing um, that got the attention of Lucasfilm. Was that your in? Yes. Um, well, it wasn't that it got their attention. It was that I grabbed their them by the shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, year, a year earlier, um, when I was working on the book, I had a section in the book on, well, half of the book was, programming for the Atari 800 to do animation. And the first half was really looking at animation in general, computer animation in general, and looking at uh, what state of the art at the time was for computer animation. And of course, for that, I went to um, Lucasfilm Computer Division, which was starting to do some really interesting stuff with uh, animation for film. Like, um, I think the first big thing they did was um, a piece for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which was the genesis um, transformation of the planet or a planet ter was terraformed. So I contacted them, told them I was researching this for the book, and they were very welcoming and ended up hanging out with them, having some meetings with them. Um, Alvary Ray Smith, who was one of the co-founders of that of the computer division and later of Pixar, um, offered to proofread the book when it was done for, for technical accuracy. And we went to SIGGRAPH and I hung out with Lauren Carpenter, who was um, one of the the guy who pretty much came up with um, flying through fractal landscapes. And I then, um, you know, that, that so it was a nice connection. So a year later, I heard from a member of a computer center that I, my wife and I were running, a public access computer center told me that they were starting up this new group. So I immediately contacted them and uh, was able to get a uh, interview. I'm one of the first people who were interviewed for a position. And the computer center you mentioned, I think that goes back to 1977, I think it was. So you, you had a, a long-term interest in computing. But on the animation side, did you have an interest in more traditional animation before you then transferred to applying it to computers? Yeah, um, not as an animator because I didn't have that skill set. Um, but when I was a kid, um, I would, you know, I, I was living in Los Angeles, 
um, not too far away from where the Hanna-Barbera studios were located. And you could just ride my bicycle um, out to the studio. Um, we had a huge dumpster in the back. And I go dumpster diving, come back up with armfuls of, of cells from the Flintstones, um, Flintstone cartoons, and um, put them in a box and carted them back home. And then I had a uh, eight millimeter camera or movie camera, which could do single frame animation or single frame stepping and would reassemble the sequences and, and put them in a different background um, and just, you know, experiment with that to see what it's like. And I remember doing stop motion video stuff. Like, you know, we would assemble a jigsaw puzzle and then um, I would go backwards. So slowly taking piece by piece out and animating the pieces as if they were finding their way in and then later ran the whole thing backwards. So it looked like the puzzle was assembling itself and, um, you know, stop motion of the sun, you know, uh, time-lapse photography of the sun rising and, um, shoes walking by themselves. And just, you know, so I was just really interested in that kind of stuff as a kid. Um, but not, not hand-drawn stuff. So there is definitely, um, a thread that you could follow. Now you were number three, employee number three, um, at LucasArts. Um, at this point, it's a whole new division for Lucas. Did it have a clear objective or did it feel more like a kind of a skunk works sort of project there? What was it like? I'd say it, it, it was kind of a, a weird hybrid. Um, Atari actually gave um, Lucasfilm a million dollars to help start the group. And then they got the first ride of a few fuels for the games we did. Of course, we had to do games for the Atari first, which is why our first games came out on that platform. Um, George, I believe saw, you know, computer games more as a continuum of something that was going to continue to improve. He wanted to just get his feet wet, not him personally, but to have the company start working on those. He wasn't really a gamer. Um, he visited us a few times over the years, but at least during the time I was there, he really wasn't very involved with, with what we were doing. Um, more like he, he was aware and, um, he's protective of us. Um, we, we were, you know, part of a large company that our larger company that was very profitable. So we didn't have that same pressure of, you know, you better create hits or you're going to go out of business. And we knew that we could be much more innovative. Um, the fact, the first two games we worked on, uh, Rescue on Fractalus, which I ended up working with uh, Lauren Carpenter with, the, that's the flight game through Fractal Mountains, and Ballblazer were intended more as experimental games. Um, we did them as a project, or, or we called them throwaway games, where if they didn't work out well, we could just toss them. Uh, and um, so the pressure of trying to have a Star Wars hit level on our first go was kind of removed, which helped a lot. You know, it was, that was a lot to live, live up to, to like, okay, you know, we're the, we're the people expecting the Star Wars of computer games or video games at the time um, was very intimidating. So that helped, uh, helped relieve the pressure. And I, I never felt at that time that we had to work for creating hits. Um, we, we weren't allowed to do Star Wars titles for the first um, 
at least eight years that um, maybe nine or 10 years, um, not definitely not when I was there. Yeah, yeah. The first title you worked on, you mentioned there was Rescue on Fractalus. That was fine. But that was, I wanted to be a Star Wars game and found out that we weren't allowed to because the license had already been sold to other companies. I bet everyone must have sat down and cracked their knuckles on day one and thought, right, Star Wars, here we go. Of course, yeah. Well, that, you know, I mean, that was why I joined the company. It, it was because I wanted to get into the movie somehow. And I saw Star Wars in 1977, which is the same year we launched our computer center, and just was enthralled by it. And it's like, hey, I, I want to get, I want to live in that universe in some way. And working for the company was as close as I could get. And then finding out that now I couldn't even create a game in that universe was very disappointing i learned that the first day i I arrived but i mean what you created with rescue on fractalus was it was a really impressive game um at that time i would have been playing games like like mercenary you know in in a similar kind of vein uh, flying around in a spaceship but that was purely wireframe graphics it didn't have the detailed filled canyons and mountains that you had um was this the first example of that kind of tech in a game that you know of yeah i i it was um and um it kind of came about because i was office mates with lauren carpenter for the first few months while they were getting our space ready and um that was one of the first questions i asked him was you know is it possible to do a fractal game on a 8-bit computer and he kind of laughed derisively at first <laughs> and no and then started thinking about it and um, took it as a challenge and came back um, soon after and said you know there might be a way to do it so we loaned him a, an Atari 800 take free took, he took home on his free time and taught himself the innards of the machine and as well as 6502 assembly and came back Literally, I think it was like three days with a, a working demo. And, you know, there, it was a demo of just, it was there were no flight dynamics of just like you move forward or back um, through a terrain. And uh, frame rate was decent. It was like at least seven or eight, maybe nine frames a second because there were, weren't a lot of extra overlap things on top of it. And um, I said, wow, okay, we, we can do it. Yeah, we've got a game. You must have thought yeah, that immediately. We've got yeah. a game, yep. yeah. We recently spoke to a chap called Mike Daly. Um, he was the man at DMA Design behind the tech demos that turned into Lemmings and also Grand Theft Auto. Um, and he explained to us from his experience in the 80s and in the early 90s, pretty much, in fact, every game that they created was as the re- result of a tech demo of, of just playing around and seeing what happened and then saying, okay, there's a game in that. Does that ring true with with what you were doing? Was there just lots and lots of tech demos? Um, yes and no. So, if, so if in the case of Rescue, I had this concept of what I mean. I really wanted to do a game which captured the feeling of flying uh, in a Tie Fighter or X Wing, and um, your know, point of view, first person. I, I was inspired by Star Raiders, which was I thought a great game on the Atari eight hundred. Uh, which we featured at our computer center. And in fact, we put it onto a large screen projector so people could play and charge, you know, extra dollar an hour or something for that. <laughs> and I just liked the the first person thrill of, of doing that. So I knew I wanted to do a first person game. And uh, I didn't know if the tech was possible. Or if, I, mean, I knew there would be ways to do it using wireframe. 
but I, I really wanted to do something more interesting. So once we knew we could do it, then then the game design matched what we could do. So it kind of was a tech demo, but it was came from a, a concept of what I wanted to be doing. Um, I think the other case, which was very much that, was um, with Ballblazer, with David Levine working on Ballblazer, where he didn't really know exactly what the game was for quite a while um, while he was working out this split screen, um, very smooth motion, um, forward motion, side motion, using a lot of you know tricks to get the Atari to do that at, at 30 frames per second. Um, may even been faster, may have been 60 frames per second. So it looked like like video. Um, and then the game came you know, months after through a lot of um, introspection thinking and brainstorming and and um, and it finally came out of that. Excellent. Well, moving on from Bullblazer and from first person uh, X-Wing flying or uh, pseudo X-Wing flying, um, if LucasArts are remembered for one genre, it is, of course, the point and click adventure game. Um, I need to show you this, David. Actually, I'm just going to change the camera view just to show you my walls are covered in LucasArts. <laughs> video game covers yeah, yeah. <laughs> big nice. big fan um now until until the next game um in fact i think the next game labyrinth lucasarts weren't yet publishing their own titles were they this this was still right. being published through other companies um and many people think that maniac mansion is the first adventure game from lucasarts but it was in fact um labyrinth in 1986 Correct. the game of the film mm. and you did work on this one didn't you yes um, so this was the first opportunity to do a game based on a movie, and I think they were, and it was a Lucasfilm was the producer of this, even though it was a Jim Henson production. I guess um, they thought if we could do this, then maybe they, you know, somewhere down the line that we could, they would trust us with another property from Lucas. Um, so we were shown early clips of the of the movie. Um, I think we got a script and we asked if we were interested in doing it. And I said, yeah, definitely. This, this sounds like a great opportunity. And, and, um, we ended up, um, a team of us flew to London for a week to do brainstorming. And, um, Douglas Adams joined in, even though he had nothing to do with the film, oh, he, wow. he was a friend with Jimmy, of Jim Henson. So he, he was, um, he participated in all of our brainstorming sessions and, um, that I was super intimidated. I, I think I was more intimidated I was going with to ask, in the room. You must have been over the point of being star, starstruck at this point. You must have been surrounded yeah, by stars. Yeah, you think. Well, well, George was very low key and um, very quiet. So it was kind of intimidating, but I didn't feel like I had to keep up with him. Um, Douglas Adams' wit and and his outflow of of content was so enormous that i felt like uh, i felt like i was like my my mouth agape in a hurricane or something of 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 ideas and um and i of course i had read his books so i already knew you know what he what he had done and it, it was difficult to just work as a you know kind of as a peer with him so i was like mostly taking notes and throwing in comments every once in a while but i don't think i made a whole bunch of contributions um I, of course, since I was taking the notes, I could add my contributions right there if I needed to, um, without having to blurt them out and get get in between the the flow of ideas. 
um, but that was great. But he he was wonderful. He was he was charming and um, very you know there there no no affect. I mean he wasn't like I am Douglas Adams. He was just you know like a real regular person uh, who just happened to be brilliant and funny. Wonderful, so, wonderful. Um, now when we look at the game um, Labyrinth. There are similarities between that and then the later Maniac Mansion. Is Labyrinth, is that the root of the, the scum system that's used in LucasArts games, or are we not quite there yet? No, Labyrinth was all done straight in straight assembly, 6502 assembly, which made it very painful to put together. Uh, but there were routines that Charlie Counter created that got reused, like I think the cell animation routines, some of the audio routine, routines, and... Uh, a bunch of that was um, reused, but the actual Scum engine, you know, Ron did that from scratch pretty much. Right, yeah, because uh, the Scum games appeared on a lot of different platforms, so it must have had to be been built with portability in mind. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and I mean, he actually started doing Maniac Mansion in 6502. I realized yeah, really soon that with all the, all, the, all the interactivity he wanted to put into it, that it would just be impossible. So that's when he was talking with Chip Morningstar, another guy, another member of the group who was known for for working on Habitat, um, which is the first massively multiplayer um, game that was created, um, and came up with the idea of of using you know uh, interpretive code, P code, and um, so we could easily transport to other platforms, but also we could write the scripts and almost English, you know, um, and then have them converted before they went down to the computer. And that made it much easier to do. Um, I think I was the first, after Ron invented it, I was the first person to actually script in Scum and, you know, on Maniac Mansion. And um, for the first beta tester, for sure, because <laughs> I was working on a language that was still being created. Often I'd be spending a lot of time trying to figure out whether I was just stupid and, you know, <laughs> the coding my, it was my error or whether there was actually a bug in the language and I had to come up with examples that proved that wasn't me. Um, so that made it take a little, little bit longer, but, um, you know, I, I loved working it, which is why um, the next game I did, which was Zach McCracken, um, also used Scum. Yes, and Zach McCracken, you were the project lead on, I believe. Right. Whereas Maniac Mansion, you came in a little bit later in the process. Right. So, 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 so Labyrinth, so Rescue and Labyrinth, I was the project leader, and and say the designer. Um, and Maniac Mansion, I came in um, onto Ron and Gary, Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick's project. They had already pretty much had the design done, and you know was was the scum scripter. Um, and then Zach was back to me again, and I brought in Matthew Matthew Kane to help me with it with the scripting. So up until now, I mean, you, you've got these two games under your belt using Scum. Um, Sierra had been a dominant force in the genre uh, with games like their King's Quest series. Were there certain lessons that you were learning from the competition, or on how or how not to approach this genre, or were you just focused on on what you were doing? Um. For Labyrinth, I would say not. I mean, in Labyrinth, we actually talked about using creating a text parser, but the schedule was so tight that we realized there was no way we could we could come out with a really good one. So instead of doing that, we ended up with this 
kind of a slot machine verb object interface where you have a, a, a scrolling set of verbs and objects you could create sentences from. So it was a precursor to Scum and, and where everything was pretty much there on the screen. Um, but it was it was in that same direction. Um, in the case of Scum, Ron was clear that he didn't want to do parser and in fact felt that having to, you know, in his term, guess the parser was kind of meta playing, metagaming, and you really weren't sure what the programmer had called the object. You know, was it a, a shrub or a bush or, or a plant or, or what? Well, for us, we were dealing with Americanisms and American spellings. So we were trying right. to figure out what the word was. Yeah. Right. And and the other downside for, for, for their system was that it made translation much more difficult. So I don't know if they even translated to other languages. Where with with scum, um, the, the, other than the text for you know the people who are spoken, there were only um, you know a small subset of, of verbs you had to translate, and and the object names that made it much easier. Um, so in the states, they probably sold ten times as many games for each game that we did. Um, but in Europe, um, they I I don't think they had any penetration other than the English versions. So we started you know, translating and um, ended up filling this, I think, this gap that they didn't have. So we ended up becoming much more prominent there. And um, even now, I think more on a per capita basis, you know, way more way more popular in, in Europe. I think perhaps that also has something to do with the, the humor that was injected into Lucasfilm's games. There was perhaps wasn't there quite so much in a game like, say, Police Quest, which was super, super mm -hmm. serious. I, I think over in Europe, that humor translated quite well. That's good. Yeah, um, and for for Zach, especially in Germany, um, it it was a huge hit compared to, um, say, in the States, and so much so that there were several fan created sequels or prequels that that were put together. Um, over the say mostly in the 1990s and i don't know if that happened with any of the other games because uh, they just wanted to continue creating that universe which was you know kind of an honor um, i didn't play any of them myself because i felt like i didn't want to if there ever were to be a sequel or any other project i didn't want to have been influenced by someone else's work and then be worried that i might unconsciously pull some from someone else's ideas um so uh, yeah, I, so I think we felt like we were competing with Sierra here, and they must have been competing with us in Europe, and it was kind of a nice, nice switch around. Well, uh, the next game that we come on to then is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Unless I'm missing anything, there wasn't anything in between, was there? Zach and Correct. Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the in terms of stuff that I worked on, that's accurate. Um, you know, in terms of Scum, um, there's Loom which was also using scum. Brian Moriarty did that. <laughs> and, and yes. And um, so I, I believe, I, I'm not sure when the release date was. It might have been a year after Indy. So it might have been in, in production at the same time we were working on Indy. 
I've got 1990 on the box I'm seeing. Right, and Indy came out in 89. So this is the 30th anniversary of, of Last Crusade. Yeah, yeah. And this was uh, obviously a movie tie-in. Um, mm-hmm. But you were on a, a quite a tight time limit with this one. And I think three designers were brought into the mix. So how did that play out? Did that? Did you enjoy that experience? Was, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it, was, it was really good. Um, the, you know, Noah Faustine was initially the project leader on this. And he was kind of struggling with it, I think, trying to figure out how, how he was going to pull it off before the film's out. This was like maybe November before the film was released in June of the following year. And, um, you know, he talked to our general manager, Steve Arnold, and we ended up bringing myself and Ron Gilbert in. So the three of us kind of became co-equal project leaders and designers and split up the game and worked together and we're able to pull it off. And we didn't quite hit the, um, the release of the movie, but, the, you know, I think we were, I think we launched maybe a, month, a couple of months after it came out. But that was still close enough considering we hit most of the summer, all the summer, and um, the film was going to be in the theaters for the whole summer. So it wasn't a huge issue. Um, and, um, what was yeah. um, what was George George Lucas's attitude towards this game? Was he watching you a little more closely, being the movie tie-in, or did he still give you some creative freedom? Well, we had a meeting with um, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg at the very beginning of the project to ask them what the parameters were. You know, what could we do? Could we kill Indy? <laughs> um, could, could we go outside the script uh, and the story and the locations? And they pretty much said, yeah, you know, do whatever you want. Kill Indy, um, go to South America if you want to, um, <laughs> go anywhere you want. And, you know, they just gave us as much leeway as we needed. Um, I mean, we knew we were going to, we knew the character. This is the third movie. Um, we knew what he was like. So we didn't have to do a lot of um, character building for the game. Um, we had a story. So, so the challenge was more, combination of timing and how do you create a game same thing for labyrinth how do you create a game that works well for anyone who has or has not seen the film although in this case we assumed everyone pretty much everyone would have seen the film Uh, we couldn't we couldn't take that for granted and we couldn't use solutions from the film as spoilers um with the game although the journal story kind of followed along so that was, you know, that worked. And we also realized that being a, an Indiana Jones movie or game, there had to be some sort of action sequence. Uh, if it was all just problem solving, it wouldn't feel accurate. Yeah. I remember being surprised, actually, when, when I first played it and you get into the boxing ring to do some training, don't you? Mm-hmm. Oh, I was, really wasn't expecting this in a right. point and click right. adventure. So in the boxing ring, we also had, there was a, um, you're flying the, biplane which was a scene from the movie and um we felt you had to have some action there are a couple there are a bunch of action sequences in the movie that we just couldn't afford to do in terms of time um like there's a whole sequence in venice um, and the venice canals and boats and boat chase and explosions and all that and that just you know was totally mixed missed we just skipped that whole thing yeah yeah Um, so the, the the collaborative designers effort then it worked pretty well. It, obviously, it worked well from my point of view as a player. I really enjoyed the game. But you mm-hmm. did have to mediate, I understand, for the uh, mm-hmm. the game ending. 
<laughs> yeah. So, well, 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 mostly through the whole thing, we we work well together. But at the very end of the project, um, there there was a sequence. It was pretty much the end game sequence, the very last part, which I was doing the scripting for. I was coding it. And Ron gave me the dialogue for it, which is a very, you know, very irreverent, tongue-in-cheek version of it. And I went ahead and put that in just um, to, you know, to get it working. And then Noah comes up to me and says, okay, here's the final dialogue for this, this sequence. And I said, well, I, I have Ron's already coded. Um, and we ended up having to have a meeting, the three of us, to figure out, you know, which version was it going to be Noah's more straightforward, authentic dialogue, you know, more from the movie or Ron's irreverent version. And they both were insistent that theirs is the one that should be. So I, my solution was to use a random number generator and switch between the two versions in each segment. So we ended up having both of them in there and, and depending on. Um, which way the random numbers go, you will play with one or the other. Or I think I think it may have been um, several points where I make the choice between the two rather than the entire yeah. stream. I love it. It's a real programmer's solution to a problem. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and, and of course, they all checked my random number code to make sure that it was it wasn't just for the first three months or something that, that it went. Oh, there's no bias. You weren't favoring <laughs> yeah, anyone. Right. right. <laughs> Well, uh, LucasArts would fill the 90s with many more memorable point-and-click adventure games uh, before succumbing to first-person shooters and, and all the other genres that became popular. Uh, but what happened uh, for you next? You did do a few more Lucas games, didn't you? I think you worked on well, Pipe Dream, was it? I worked on Pipe Dream more as a producer since that was a game that we, I think we purchased or licensed from another company, um, small group, and we manage the conversion so I, I think i was managing the conversion to the mac and we also did some adjustments to the gameplay but it, it was much more of a management role than a creative programming role um and then i was i spent a year as the um director of operations um we were growing rapidly as a group you know 15 of us moved to i mean there's three of us when i started 15 of us when we moved to Skywalker Ranch. And then four years later, we were around 65 and outgrowing the ranch. We had to move back to the a commercial area in San Rafael in, in Marin County. And um, we saw it continue to grow, but it was a very flat organization. Everyone was pretty much um, had to report to Steve Arnold, our general manager. So he wanted to create more heads of groups, heads of departments. And he asked me to come, you know, to take on this role, pure management role for a year to, to bring in people to, to head these different groups, and um, not a really fun prospect for me because it wasn't creative in the same. I mean, I had to make creative decision making, I guess, but it wasn't creative in the way that you would be creating a game. And, um, but as a carrot, you know, he knew that I really wanted to be doing immersive entertainment like location-based entertainment or you know theme park related stuff and he said okay we're gonna we're gonna do it if you do this for a year then i'll promise you we'll have a project that we'll create where you can do um work on your dream and that's what that's what happened um so after a year of doing this i got to work create a small group um i wasn't the head of the group i was i guess the lead creative on it um 
called Rebel Arts and Technology, and it's kind of Skunk Works. And we had a partnership with Hughes Simulations, Hughes Aircraft, and we ended up um, creating a, a, so we called the Mirage Project. It was a very large pod, um, two seats inside for two players, and it was going to be networked with maybe seven other of these pods. We used an Amiga for a heads-down display and for the joystick controls, and um, it, it was awesome game. You know, it was actually a Star Wars game. And so it was my first Star Wars game I got to work on. And it sounds like the ultimate Star Wars game. To it be was, honest, yeah. I'd love to play that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of gameplay, it was very much, you know, I was kind of re reusing some of the rescue on Fractalus because you were really flying through um, terrain, through mountainous terrain, but at, you know, 60 frames per second with, you know, 120 degree field of view where you can look around and seeing the whole thing. So very, very immersive. Um, and it was great, uh, but it was too expensive. Um, the tech at the time, we were using you know, professional flight simulator technology. It's probably going to be about a million dollars per pod. Um, so maybe eight, six to eight million dollars for a set, a setup. And they just couldn't sell the concept at theme parks. Yeah, so, I mean, what um, could you yeah. charge to, to go on that? A dollar, five dollars a go? It's, it's, it's yeah, a really. lot of rides to make that money yeah. back, yeah. Well, so I mean, I guess we're doing that now with with the Star Wars scene area in in Disneyland. So you know they can now do it much more more cost effectively. So just thinking about your whole time then uh, while working at LucasArts, uh, what period was your favorite, David? Was it when you were at the Skywalker Ranch, or what was the, what was the best point for you? Do you think when I was at Skywalker, um, you know, Maniac Mansion. Zach McCracken and Indiana Jones all took place there. Um, and it's probably my favorite ones. Um, Zach might've been my favorite just because it was my, my concept. Yeah. Yeah. That was your baby. Uh, but it, it, baby. it wouldn't be the end of point and click for you because we, we bring you up to date uh, 2017 and the, the band gets back together. There's the t-shirt <laughs> for a uh, Thimbleweed park, uh, which was successfully crowd crowdfunded. You raised $626,000. Were you surprised by the thirst for a, for an old school point and click adventure game? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I knew Ron Gilbert had a huge Twitter following at the time, um, and so I knew that people loved the Monkey Island games. That we were constantly being asked to do sequels or to you know get the rights back from Disney to do new ones, and um, this was Ron's. Ron wanted to do something original, um, and this was his project. So he and Gary Winnick also came up with this, and I really wasn't very involved during the whole first part. Um, I got to look at the Kickstarter pages ahead of time to give feedback, but I wasn't on the creative end of it. Um, and But once they reached their... I think their target was three fifty, three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Once they reached that and saw they were going to go beyond it, then um, I was invited in, and I made sure he knew that I would be interested in working on yeah, it. I'm available. I'm available. Yes, <laughs> hey, if, it, if it's possible, I'd love to work on it. Um, and then and Mark Ferrari at the same time came on, who's a you know, fabulous artist who did a lot of the backgrounds for for Thimbleweed Park. 
Yeah, it's got such a great look to it. It, it just looks like all of those classic LucasArts games. Um, it's fantastic. And it, it is on sale now, I believe, uh, for multiple platforms. Um, so I'll put links to that. Um, and there's another game that you worked on um, for tablets. Um, is that still on sale? I think this is back in 2014, isn't it? Yeah, it's still available. So there's a, I, this is before Thimbleweed Park. Um, I wanted to do a game. I hadn't really done games for a while. I wanted to do a, a tablet-based game. And I also wanted to do something which was kind of a chain reaction puzzler type game. Um, very much like some of the Rube Goldberg machine type games I had seen. Um, and when I started doing the research, I saw that there weren't any games that were actually um, officially Rube Goldberg sanctioned. And Rube Goldberg, for those who don't know, um, was an American cartoonist from mostly from the last century, um, especially popular in the 1930s and 40s. Um and known still for creating these chain reaction machines that as cartoons. And, you know, where we still have these, you know, you see them all the time now where you have a one object trigger, another object trigger, another object. Yeah, the and most usually, complex solution possible to a, to right. a problem, yeah. And, and intent is usually, you know, to be a comedy, to be funny. And most of the games I saw were really weren't, there were more puzzlers, but they weren't humorous. So I found that I, the... I found a website for RubeGoldberg.com and contacted them and and pitched my idea and got a phone call the next morning. It turned out from Rube Goldberg's granddaughter, and um, we had a great relationship right from the from the front from the start, and um, got the rights to use a bunch of his cart original comics um, as the basis for the levels of the game. But you know, so it has a nineteen. 30s style to it in terms of music and in terms of um the, the art direction um and it's it's fun well david i think that brings us up to date uh, on on your life in in gaming so thank you very much for your contribution to the games that, that we know and love uh david thank you very much for your time sir thank you you've been listening to the retro tea break podcast if you enjoy this kind of thing, then check out my YouTube channel, Retro Man Cave, or for more podcasts, search Retro Island Diskettes, or see the show notes for links.